All right. We're recording Worldwide Bible Class on November the 9th, 2022, The Life of Jacob with Martin Luther. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Let's look at the text. This is the good stuff. So um, <clears throat> so we are, whoa, 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 whoa. You'll remember we're in Genesis 28, uh, and the Lord had sent uh uh well really rachel uh sorry sorry rebecca and isaac have sent uh jacob away as far as uh as far as rebecca's concerned it's to save his life cuz she knows that esau is going to kill him but as far as isaac is concerned it's so that he can go and get married and so he's uh so they're going to send him away so he doesn't marry the Canaanite women. Remember the two wives of Esau were driving uh, Rebecca, sorry, yeah, Rebecca, crazy. And so Esau sees that he also goes and he marries another, a third wife, uh, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. So he goes and marries his cousin so to try to please uh, his parents and so forth. And what and and the result is what we're looking at here is uh is that now Jacob is in exile and uh and Ishmael is in charge. Whoops. Sorry, let me make sure. Can you guys see that? Can you see what I'm looking at? Uh and uh, and it looks like all of the work that had happened to get the blessing to Jacob had failed. It looks like Esau remains in charge of the house. It looks like there's some reconciliation between, between Isaac and Rebekah and Esau, and Jacob is gone. He has just, he's, he, he's out of there, and he's completely out of the picture. For years, he's going to be completely out of the picture. It's pretty amazing. Luther talks about this um, that that we have that we have to learn this patience that he's a king without a crown, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We talked a long time last week about was it faithless for um, for Isaac and Rebecca to send uh, Jacob away to go to the pagans, and we we talked about that how sometimes. You know, the pagans are the best option. And we talked about how the faith had kind of remained. Okay. So that takes us here. Uh, so we'll pick up at this point um, this discussion of Haran uh, uh, that's going to come up here. So I think we're ready. Let's do it. Haran is the city to which Terah, Abraham's father, fled from Ur of the Chaldeans and where he lived. From there, Abraham was called to the land of Cana. But Nahor, who was Abraham's brother, and his descendants remained there. Jerome says that it was called Charon. It was situated in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Here is the place where the Roman people suffered a great defeat when Crassius led them against the Parthians, who seized the eagle and the standards from the Romans and wretchedly slew Crassius himself, as reported by Plutarch. Luther, it's a, it's amazing. It's always amazing to me when Luther just his his knowledge of all of this pagan history and pagan poetry and everything was pretty profound it's kind of amazing you well, you know and 
one of the amazing things about it is we always think of ourselves. Do is this true? We always think of ourselves as like, oh, the smartest here at the end of the world. The only way that you can maintain that illusion is by not reading anyone from the ancient world. I mean, you go back and you read those guys and you're like, wow, we're a bunch of dummies. Anyhow, uh, so here, so he came to a certain place, etc. Luther's going to get into the, some Hebrew notes. In the Hebrew, Moses uses an extraordinary word, paga, which cannot be translated into German. It has the same meaning when we say er trafe in Eben An or a place met him or begegnet. It also means to intercede in chapter 23. Um, uh, intercede for me that myself feel properly speaking therefore does not mean to come but means a place met him he happened upon a place hence it's applied to intercession because he who intercedes meets the man who is to be placated in german we say er kam on geffer on or he happened upon the place this is interesting I, I don't know if it's interesting for you but it's interesting to me to see how luther you know he doesn't wrestle with every word at least in the commentary but he'll come across a word and he'll, he'll really wrestle with it to to see how do you get it how do you get it into german it's like a hebrew idiom and he's seeing how it's used in different places and he's asking the question what does it mean and how do we translate it it was this is, a, this is really mm, there's there's something actually To understand Luther as a translator, th this is what he was doing. This is his, his deal. Anyway, it's just as if Moses said, Jacob, sad and disturbed, had not thought of resting in that place. It happened this way, contrary to expectation. Much less did he think that he would see a vision that night. But being in flight, he wanted to either proceed farther or to stop on the nearer side of that place. He had not intended to spend the night there. This is going to be Bethel, by the way. This is what the place is going to become. Now, uh, this is how it happened. Nothing was farther from his mind than spending the night there, seeing that vision, because the sunset takes him unawares. He's complete. He's compelled to stay there. Therefore, Moses points out that Jacob was disturbed and concerned about his own peril and about the condition and safety of his parents, whom he had forsaken. And in that in that state of grief, he hurried to arrive quickly at the desired place. Yet stop there because the night was rushing on. Now, just, I mean, again, to get the, the details that Luther is pulling out of the different Hebrew words, it doesn't use the normal word, he came to that place. It used the place that, it, it says that place met him. And, and Luther's understanding that that strange use of that Hebrew word is an indication of all that's going on in the heart and the mind of Jacob. It's, it's really a beautiful and very careful reading. See, um. Those who are exhausted by sorrow, flight, anxiety, and bodily fatigue are easily lulled and gently fall asleep. Thus, Christ found the disciples in the garden sleeping for sorrow. Sometimes grief makes it impossible for others to sleep. But our patriarch falls asleep because he has been exhausted by his cares and as a result of his journey. Look, can I just highlight in this little section this word here, our patriarch. Uh, Jacob is ours. And we know that because we're reading the Bible and the Lord is giving us Jacob. <laughs> that's this, that's what it means. So our pay, this is, a, this is, when we think of Jacob, we think of our Jacob, our Moses, our David, our Paul, and so forth. 
It's great. Okay. But what kind of couch, what bed, what covering did he have? He's eyes on the ground and as a pillow, he puts under his head a stone, which he found in the place. It seems that he did not dare entrust himself to any city or village, for he suspected everybody. This is this sort of state that he's in, a state of suspicion. He's not sure that he's going to be safe anywhere. He was deserted. It was dark after sunset. He had no hay or straw to spread under him. Just as the disciples in the garden had neither fellows, fellows, neither fellow, <laughs> neither feathers nor pillows. But just as anyone who had sunk down on the ground, so he rested while either lying or sitting, and he slept no less sweetly and pleasantly uh, than if he had feathers or hay spread under him. Thus the patriarch, Jacob, enjoys complete rest in that desert, even though he's been put in the greatest danger of grief because of his flight. Sorry, I want to... I'm trying to open up... Uh, the text over here without moving the commentary. So, okay. Okay. There we go. Uh, for the trials are exceedingly great and severe. And if his heart is afflicted and oppressed by their severity, it has need of rest in order that may, it may revive a little and the grief may be assuaged. Marashtan or Marashtan it points out what is placed under the head and is derived from the word for head. The Jews say, as Lyra recounts, this is very interesting, that Jacob placed three stones under his head and that when he had awakened, they were joined into one. For here he says stones in the plural number, but afterward he says stone in the singular. So that's this difference here. You have stones in verse 11, and then, then it has in verse 18, stone. So Lyra, uh, the Jewish commentator, says that Jacob started with three stones, and as he slept, they were melded, and he wakes up and there's one. Whether the Jews have this from the fathers or not, I don't know. It would be a fine thought if it had originated from the fathers, for it would seem that he wanted to leave behind indications of the future faith in Christ. But the Jews have no understanding whatever of Jacob's dream, which follows. So Luther says, we don't know if this was a tradition handed down and if it's some truth. And it'd be nice if it was, but we can't say too much about it. But the important thing is not the stones becoming a stone, but rather what the Lord says in the dream. And, and this is kind of a, I don't know, maybe another attitude towards the Bible thing that we should notice. And that is that we can give attention to some of the his, historical traditions that come up around the scriptures, but the main thing has to be the word. I mean, if you don't have the words that God is going to speak, then you know, what good is that going to do you if you have if you have this idea, this sort of Trinitarian picture of three stones melding into one overnight? Okay. So here's verse 12. Uh, and he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth 
and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth. Luther comments, this is a very beautiful sermon and an extraordinary gem of this whole history, which should be accurately and carefully examined because, as we've often stated, in the legends and histories of the fathers and the saints, one should observe chiefly that God speaks with them. Uh, this is a... Um, it's a common this is a common uh a common priority that Luther gives. In fact, when Luther's talking about the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he says we should prefer John. Why? Because in John we hear more of the words of Jesus rather than the works of Jesus, which we hear in the other gospels. So that when God speaks, that's what we pay attention to. It's I was thinking about it this morning. If there was like a way to have a like a red letter Bible. Um, and to have the uh, the texts that are spoken by God to, uh, to be highlighted or something like that. We have it in the New Testament where the where the um, the words of Jesus are given to us in red. But what what about in the Old Testament where the words are there? So Luther says, look, we have to focus on the th the times when God speaks. It is for this reason that they are saints. And are called saintly, for there are two kinds of saintliness. And here, okay, just prepare yourself for some classic Luther. And this is going to be law gospel distinction stuff. It's it it's really this is really good. If you haven't taken notes yet, here here's where we can take some notes. There are two kinds of saintliness. Huh? The first is that by which we are sanctified through the word being saints of the word. The second is that by which we are saintly on the basis of what we do and how we live. So you have the saintliness of the law, what we do, and the saintliness of the gospel, the word of God. But these two kinds of saintliness, remember the Reformation really started almost with a Luther essay on the two kinds of righteousness. It's the same thing now at the end. These two kinds of saintlinesses, this, these two kinds of saintliness must be most accurately distinguished. For the first and purest kind of saintliness is in the word, in which there is no fault, no spot, no sin. It is so saintly that it needs no remission of sins because it is God's truth. Now, this threw me off a little bit when I was reading it last week. What does this mean? How, how does this go that it needs no remission of sins? The reason it needs no remission of sins is because this saintliness is the remission of sins. We read in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the, in the truth. Thy word is truth. Someone, Sarah mentions law and gospel and Dr. Markward. This verse, have I told you the story? This is going to get us off track, but let me tell you a story. The, um, I remember when I was at the seminary, every year the Fort Wayne Symposium, Fort Wayne Seminary hosts a symposium. And one year that I was there, uh, this was in Dr. Markwart, 
uh, was still alive. And his classmate, who's also now died, oh, for heaven's sakes, uh, uh, Richard Newhouse, Father Richard Newhouse, uh, who was a classmate of Dr. Marquardt, became a Lutheran pastor, I think Missouri Synod. I think he joined the ELCA before he went Roman Catholic, and then he started First Things and, and did a lot, was a very influential theologian, Catholic theologian um, in, in his career. And so they invited uh, Richard Newhouse to come and present at the symposium. And they were talking about the church and the unity of the church and this sort of thing. Uh, it was kind of the topic. So Dr. Marquardt and Dr. and, and, uh, Newhouse, father Newhouse, I suppose, were talking to each other after one of their papers. And so I walked up to talk to them, which is an amazing to be able to talk to both of these gi theological giants as they were talking together. And I said, what does the unity in what does the unity of the church consist and father newhouse starts to answer and he says well the church simply finds herself as one it's an organic unity a reality or something and i don't he, he i don't remember exactly what he said but he kind of went on about that idea the church finding herself as one it's the the unity of the church, I think, is a given, as he was he was trying to teach it. And he finished, and Dr. Marquardt looks at him, and then he looks at me, and he says, that's rubbish. <laughs> the word of God is the unity of the church. Jesus says, praise that we would be one, and he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. <laughs> That was so great. That's rubbish. He was the, Dr. Mark was the kindest, gentlest man, but there's father knew how, and he just let him have it. And he quoted this verse, these words from Jesus, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So great. It was really, uh, now this is what Luther's talking about. That, that first kind of saint, uh, saintliness is from the word. In that saintliness, we who have been called through the word, and remember this call is the gospel call. The Holy Spirit calls us by the gospel, strengthens us, uh, enlightens us, and so forth. Called through the word, glory. So what is our glory? What is our boast? What is our joy? It's the word which forgives. It is outside of us. It's not on our work. So this... Uh, so this, the, the saintliness of the word is an external gift. It's, this is the language of alien righteousness. It's apart from us, it's outside of us, and it's applied to us from the outside, not from our own working or doing, but as a gift. It is not formal righteousness, this technical term, which Luther takes up in his Galatians commentary. I was going to take us to this uh, reference here, um, Luther's works 26 which is his greater Galatians commentary. But then I decided that we would just do Galatians next when we finish Genesis. But it's a heavenly saintliness communicated to us through the word and indeed through the spoken word, not through the... Notice that it's not like just being close to the Bible or like sleeping on the Bible or putting the Bible 
in your pocket or even reading the Bible. It's the, it's the word preached, the spoken word, the external word that's coming to us. That is what makes us saints. Therefore, we proclaim that righteousness. What righteousness? The saintliness of the word and oppose it to all forms of righteousness and saintliness of the Pope and the hypocrites, all the hypocrites. For it is unpolluted saintliness that the word gives to us. I have the word. I'm saintly, righteous, and pure without any fault and indictment insofar as I have the word. Thus Christ himself says, John 15, 3, I am the vine, you are the branches. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. How glorious. So the first kind of saintliness is the forgiven saint, the the whole, the one made holy by the word of God. See it? The Pope has no knowledge of this saintliness. This is this is one of the again the what is the Reformation? It it once you get this, once you once you see this in the Scripture, there is no going back. That sanctification comes through the word, that the that the external preaching of the world of the word makes us saints and righteous. And if you and and no matter what else, the church, which is the Pope or whatever other church, whatever else they get wrong, if they don't have this, then they have nothing. Everything is missing. The, the very heart of the scripture has been ripped out. That So here's the problem. The Pope has no knowledge of this saintliness. All self-righteous people despise it and cling to the righteousness of the law, the saintliness of our works. They do not ascend to the heavenly saintliness by which we are acceptable for, before God because of his word. Therefore, and this is why Luther is highlighting this, therefore the legends of the saintly patriarchs, and here he's not taking legend, like we think of legend and myth, as a as a as a story that's not true this is luther would confess the truth of this of this history so we shouldn't say it's like a made up thing the legends of the saintly patriarch should be observed above all when god speaks with them so when we're going through the history and we hear the words of god then we speak up because it's that word that makes us righteous for from the word you learn how great the saints are, even if they never performed a single miracle, yet that's impossible. But before the flesh does anything, we are saintly through the word. Therefore, I conclude, the word is not my work. Consequently, when I glory in my work, I lose the word. On the other hand, if I glory in the word, my work perishes. What do, I, what do I need to present before the Lord? I'm already made righteous. Of this, no one can persuade the papists. We've Luther was trying for, let's see, how old was he? He's, Luther's been trying for, for 30 years at this point. And we've added to that another 500 years of effort, one by one, but not as a church. Of this, no one can persuade the papists who constantly bark out that old saying, reason strives for what's best. It's philosophy, not theology. Who said it? Let me think. That's not going to tell us. Just references to Luther. 
Let us remember that there are two kinds of saintliness. One is the word, which is saintliness itself. But this saintliness is imputed, not infused or poured in or accomplished or merited or whatever. It's imputed to us. It's, it's applied to our account. It's, it's given to us who have the word. And a person is simply accounted saintly. Not because of us or because of our works, but because of the word. Thus, the whole person becomes righteous. Therefore, the church is called holy. Remember the word for saint and the word for holy are the same words. It's, um, it's one of these uh, English problems. We have, uh, what's the Greek for saint? Hagios is the Greek. And so, let's see, hagios, and that goes into uh, heiliger into German, however you spell that, heiliga. I don't. That's not how to spell it. I'm sure it goes into Latin as sanctus. So that comes into English as holy, and this comes into English as like saint or whatever it goes there so so we just we're we're you know how english grabs all these different languages so um uh we we had a, i remember at hope we had a let's see highly highly ah hey i got pretty close highly yeah so we at uh, at Hope in Aurora, we used to have a banner, a red banner that said SS on it. And everyone's like, wait, what SS? Secret police? No, Spiritu Sanctu. That's the in the Latin. Yeah. So so that so that we got the same Greek going into German and Latin, and then we're pulling both words into English. So when it we when we say I believe in there's a triple holy oh this is one of those riddles there's a triple holy in the creed that's just hard to see but i believe in the holy spirit the holy christian church the communion of holy ones saints same word there it's really kind of nice so this is why we call the the church says luther it's why we call the church holy and why we are called holy because we have irreprehensible holiness not from us, but from heaven. Not from us, but from heaven. This is, this is, ugh. and this saintliness should not be despised, nor should we be ashamed to be called saintly. I hope you heard that in your, in your All Saints sermon on Sunday. It's phenomenal. Uh, Jeanette says, okay, but you, Luther, are speaking about more than just the words on the pages of Scripture. The Word becomes flesh, right? Not yet, but yes, it's connected. Because the Word, that's the, the, the speaking of God, the preaching of the gospel, is the preaching of Christ, the Word made flesh. So apart from the incarnation of the Word of God, His death and resurrection, the other speaking of God's Word does not have this effect. But but all the speaking of God, Old Testament and New Testament, is bringing the benefit of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. We, we do not glory in this saintliness. We do wrong to the true God who sanctifies with this word. We, if we do not glory in the, in the forgiveness of sins. But I'm a sinner, you will say. I know you're a sinner. And if you were not, here, this is God talking, Luther, 
is giving us what God says to us. I know that you're a sinner, and if you were not, I would not want to sanctify you. You would have no need of the word. But because you are a sinner, I sanctify you. This is the first saintliness is the saintliness of the gospel. Fantastic. Now, there's a second saintliness, which we want to talk about here, and that's the saintliness of the law. Let me clear this up. Here we go. Uh, the other saintliness is the saintliness of works. It is love, which does what is pleasing. Here, not only God speaks, but I strive to follow God when he speaks. But because weakness clings to us, this righteousness is not pure. So the righteousness of the gospel, the saintliness of the gospel, is perfect and pure and complete. That holiness is unassailable and irreproachable. But the saintliness of love, on the other hand, is incomplete and partial and just beginning. If you want to know, just so we're, that's we're talking about sanctification here. And uh, if you want to, the, the unique way that Lutherans always talk about sanctification is that sanctification is begun. It's started. It's never complete. It's never finished. We start to love. We start to serve. We start to bless. We start to care for our neighbor. All of this, it's begun. It's just, but it's always incomplete. That's one of the, that's one of the, the, the kind of essential parts of our understanding is that the righteousness of love is always a partial righteousness, while the righteousness of faith is complete. Here God speaks, I strive to follow God when he speaks, because weakness clings to us, this righteousness is not pure. But the Lord's prayer reigns, and it's necessary to pray, hallowed be thy name. This pertains to our saintliness and the saintliness of works, which is formal, means belongs to us, and pertains to the saintliness of the Decalogue and the Lord's Prayer. So works, this is nice. Notice how the three parts of the creed are, sorry, the three parts of the catechism, the Ten Commandments, the creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And Luther says, there's a saintliness of the, of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, the saintliness of the Lord's Prayer, that's the saintliness of love, and then the first saintliness must be referred to the symbol, to the creed. The symbol means creed. Uh, for I do not take hold of the promise of the word through the Ten Commandments, nor do I do it through the Lord's Prayer, but with them I grasp my love and my works. Through faith, however, I take hold of the word that is purity itself. So we have the saintliness of love, which has to do with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. You have the saintliness of faith, which has to do with the creed, what God has done. These things cannot be adequately stated and inculcated, this distinction between law and gospel. Yet there's an easy distinction between the commandment and the promise. The word, okay, so here's, if you want, I don't know why I didn't highlight this. Uh, the word I don't, I don't want to move on to the sentence here. So easy distinction between the commandment and the promise. If you want another way of saying law and gospel, here it is. Law, command, gospel, promise. Now, there are, the reason why we prefer law and gospel to command and promise is because there are promises connected to the commandments, conditional promises. If you honor your father and mother, it'll go well with you. You'll live long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. But this idea of command and promise is the basic distinction between law and gospel. In fact, do I have the book? Of, I forgot about this until just right now. The book of Concord, 
when it is first when when the distinction between law and gospel is first introduced in the book of concord it is in that in that language of command and promise um uh let's see yeah here it is so this is apology of the augsburg confession article four all scripture should be divided into these two chief doctrines the law oops and the promises i thought it said command there the law and the promises in some places it presents the law in other places it presents the promise of christ in the old testament the messiah will come etc or in the new testament the messiah has come in this by law in this discussion we mean the commandments of the decalogue the ten commandments wherever they appear in scripture for the present we are saying nothing about the ceremonial and civil laws of moses so there's where the three kind of categories of law moral law ceremonial law and civil law comes in don't don't let people tell you that that's a calvinistic distinction it's right here in apology for but now we're in the weeds but this is how it doesn't say law and gospel it says law and promises command and promise so this is a native way of speaking of law and gospel luther says it's easy to distinguish between the command and the promise the word which justifies the believer without my love and my righteousness is one thing it's something else when i take hold of the commandments of god so that i don't steal i don't commit adultery etc but the papists are submerged in and overwhelmed by their own darkness to such an extent that when they hear this doctrine, they do not hear. Nor do we ourselves retain it firmly enough. This is why Luther and the old Lutherans would say that if you learn to distinguish between law and gospel, you deserve to be called a doctor of theology. Because it's easy enough to say, oh, that's God commanding me something. And, oh, that's God giving me something. It's easy enough. But in practice, it starts to fall apart. Therefore, uh, learn from the reading of these histories what we've always been accustomed to do in our reading, namely to linger at this passage when God speaks with the patriarchs. For here the best and most precious things are to be read. <laughs> Now, all this is Luther noting that uh, the Lord stood and said. And Luther's going to say, ah, whenever you see that, the Lord saying, you just stop, just slow down, just take it easy. And let's rejoice in the, in the words that are there, because that word gives life. <laughs> it's fantastic. Now let us look at the sermon itself. I think, um, you know what? This is a good spot to stop. I, uh, we can, the next thing, so Luther's going to start digging into the vision, the ladder the, uh, of angels up and down and the Lord's exposition and his promise to Jacob and why it's of such great comfort. But I think uh, this is probably a good break because that'll, I mean, it's a couple of hours of work to be done on that. So let's, so let's stop here. and. Um, I'll say a quick prayer and in the recording, and then we'll jump on uh, to the conversation. If 
sorry for everyone here. Just make announcements for people. If you're watching this on video later or listening to the podcast, so every Wednesday morning we do this live on Zoom. And the thing that's happening next is probably the most fun because we'll have questions, comments, conversation. Everyone jumps on as well. So if you're used to watching this recorded, but you can join us live someday, uh, that's great. Wolfmuller.co slash Bible is how to do that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would give us the comfort, the forgiveness, the life, the joy, the peace, uh, the holiness that comes, the righteousness that comes from your word outside of us, the perfection that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Grant us this confidence, and by it, let us also cling to the commands that you've given so that we would begin to love and serve the neighbors that you've given to us. For we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh,